0: It's been a while since we've been here. The production of our podcast was put into an unavoidable and unwanted hiatus due to the lockdown closure of libraries and archives in the UK, well, more specifically, in Cornwall. Some of the main resources we consult, such as the Falmouth History Archive at the Poly or the microfilm at Falmouth Library, continue to remain closed almost seven months since. We both mourn and understand this. Nothing is more important than for all of us to remain safe. In this time, we've been busy. Episode 8 came out in March, fully produced during the lockdown. We've joined other writers and researchers in hosting events online, discussing the literary podcast, archival research, and creative collaboration. We've worked on plans for Season 2. We've gained time to finish Season 1. On the Hill turned one year old. And we've been honoured with an Owen medal for our nectar or creativity by Gorthes Skerno for the work we've done on Season 1. We're so grateful and humbled by all the support we've received this year. There was a lightning of joy when we heard that Kirsten Kerno, the new and important archive at Red Ruth, was reopening. We were almost the first at the door. Someone bid us to that place of honor. And since we've been there, we can happily say that production of On the Hill is back on track. By necessity, we have to do things differently. And that's okay. We adapt. But we're happy to resume sharing with you the stories we have found about those buried in Fano Cemetery. There are a few more left in the quiver of season 1. Here goes episode 9. This episode contains short descriptions of corporal punishment and mentions of suicide. It might not be suitable for everyone. century Cornwall offered a number of paths for a young man looking for a future. If he braved the mines, the court of the land itself might open to him. The day would involve walking miles into and out of the mining site, eight-hour shifts, excruciating physical work in high temperatures, and the grime-dusted crust of the pasty as evidence of what sustained him. Naked feet in heavy boots, the candle wobbling on the lump of clay secured to the crown of his hat. This would be a hot, dark, uncomfortable existence, but one with wages worth considering. If the young man looking for a future stayed above ground, he would work the surface of the land, rolling hills of farm fields to toil over, pastoral farms in the hands of families needing less and less hands as time went by, the sun of the summer brightening his skin, the sharp wind of the rest of the year taking layers of warmth from him. If the young man looking for a future sought the coast, he could be among those immortalized by the Newling School, as he maneuvered the exposure to the evening air, and balanced himself on a boat, whilst he dipped his basket into the water, and brought up a stream of liquid silver from the shoal swimming below him, as G. S. Courtney described it in a Guide to Penzance in
1: 1845.
0: If he wanted to venture further, the young man looking for a future could travel the world and be among the many Cornish who emigrated to all corners from all industries. If he had an education, the young man looking for a future might find himself working for the Freemans or the Foxes, or one of the other prominent families at the top of the industry in Cornwall. Or else, he might find himself training in the Navy. In this episode we explore the quiet life of George Kerswell Schiff, one such young man who set out into one of the paths that Cornish boys will do as the song says we learn about the HMS Ganges and the time it spent moored near Miler and we find out more about the process of consecration of famous Cemetery. My name is Sheresa Garcia Rangel and this is on the Hill on a bright sunny day in October, I took a walk to Falmouth Cemetery to find my way back to George Schiff's grave. There he is. Let's see. Sacred to the memory of George Schiff, who died on November the 6, 1899, aged 41 years. Erected by his comrade Anne Collins. Your Ship's gravestone is at the corner of the cemetery, sheltered by a beautiful ancient chestnut tree. There are rain stains on its surface, like tears. There's a branch of the great chestnut that shelters his grave, that almost touches it. And the ground is littered by the beautiful foliage of autumn in this sunny October day. And by broken up chestnuts in their sea urchin like shells, no overly religious significance, no passages quoted, no hymns mentioned, just his name, when he died, his sage, and a note to the person who erected it for him. We haven't found out who this person was. Their name is not mentioned on the obituary, but we wager whether he was involved with George Shift in a different way. Was he part of the navy? Was he a friend from one of the religious groups Shift belonged to? Or is there something else to the story? According to his baptism record, George Kerswell Schiff was born on the 15th of December, 1857. His father was James Schiff, a coast guard from Shepherdswell in Kent, who would live until his 80s. George's mother was Sarah Ann Schiff, from the village of Mudbury in Devon. George was the third of five children, Mary Sarah the eldest, his brother John, then James like his father, and finally his baby sister Harriet. Our research has led us from census to census, record to record, from his baptism in the wesleyan Callington circuit on the 24th of February, 1858, all the way to the end of his Navy career in the 1890s. Born in Cheviac, George lived with his family in the fishing village of Port Wrinkle, known for its once thriving Pilcher fisheries. The sea would be part of his life all throughout its length.
1: Wanted for the Royal Navy, fine boys who can read and write, between the ages of 15 and 16 and a half years, 3,500 are annually required. For all particulars, apply by letter or otherwise to the commanding officer HMS Ganges at Falmouth. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, July 29th of August, 1871.
0: At the age of 16 or 18, if you believe the Navy record, which also names John Schiff, George's brother, in the Lord Warren. George joins on the Hercules on the 1st of January 1873. He will continue his career in the Navy for 20 years, sailing on the Adelaide, the Angicourt, the Cambridge, the Vernon, the Achilles, the Miranda, the Vivid One, the Defiance. Have you perhaps guessed that we love ship's names? His records show that George had an excellent career. His character is line by line, year by year, and ship by ship, written down as either good, very good, or excellent. But perhaps the most significant parts of this time in his life were his commissions on the HMS Ganges and the HMS Cleopatra, where George served as chief gunner. The HMS Ganges had a long history in Cornwall, moored in Mylar for decades as it was, and we will talk about that in a bit. But there are other aspects of George's life which interest us. We know he rose to petty officer first class in 1885. We know that two years later he was on the Miranda and married a local woman, Elizabeth Ann Pengeli, in 1887. We haven't been able to track her further than this. It is not uncommon to lose sight of women in historical records. Less opportunity to work, less access meant less paperwork, less tracks for us to follow. And not every record survived the erosion and change of hands across centuries. Through his Navy record, we begin to draw a picture of George, though. He was well behaved, successful, 5'6", his hair was light, his eyes were blue, and he had a fair complexion. After a long career in the Navy, George came ashore a day after his birthday on the 16th of December, 1893. Pensioned, he found himself back in Falmouth at 36 years of age. Earlier that year, he gave an address on the monthly meeting of the Total Abstinence and Blue Ribbon Union in the town hall. This institution brought together those interested in vowing to abstain from alcohol and provided support to encourage their members to maintain it. It is possible that George's address that day was his vow.
1: With malice toward none, with charity for all... I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, I promise, God helping me, to abstain from all intoxicating liquors as beverages, and to do all in my power to induce others to abstain. Cornwall Blue Ribbon Union and Gospel Temperance Mission.
0: He became the caretaker of the Society of Friends Meeting House in New Street Falmouth. He appears listed there on the post office directory of Falmouth and Neighbourhood in 1895, and 1898, working not far from the original graveyard of the town, which by this time, although alleviated by Falmouth Cemetery in Hanman's Hill, was still in use. George was also involved in the Siemens Bethel and Institution. A picture of Falmouth Siemens Bethel, founded in 1849, shows an impressive chapel decorated with twin lifesavers at each side of the room, a rotor at the center, crowned with what looks like a wooden pulpit, and a range of flags. He used to stand near the base of Key Hill, an intricate life following the direction of many others in Cornwall, where the sea and religion were woven together to make the character of a man. This is almost as far as we can follow George Carswell Sheaf's life. Almost, I said, because the most remarkable part of this history is yet to come whoever said we needed to peek early. We have more to share about your shift, but for now, let's learn more about the HMS Ganges. On an evening in March 1866, the HMS Ganges gently towed by the gladiator, arrives in Falmouth ready to take up her post as a training ship. Scarcely a month goes by before the Falmouth packet begins to report on the conditions of those on the ship. Reports of dreadful punishments, suicides and inquests begin to appear on the weekly newspaper to the shock of the town. In April, a boy is confined to the cell, alone for a whole week. The reason? Singing an immoral song. He must have been younger than twenty. Directly after, the conditions that led to the death of the wardroom steward of the ship, Mr. Joseph Pierce Striveling, who had served on many other ships for about eight years, are reported in detail. In detail too, the report lists a number of references to the ill treatment of the crew by the ship's commander. On the same year, the Army and Navy Gazette comments on a report of crime and punishment in the Royal Navy, which had been published in Parliament in 1864 by Mr. William Hickman. This report places the several ships of the Navy in order of merit under the crimes of their crews and their punishments. Of this analysis, the Gazette remarks,
1: The plan is doubtless a good one as commanding officers are at once able to discover the comparative merits or failings of their respective crews with reference to other ships' companies similarly situated in the same station, and so they can each, to a certain extent, obtain a knowledge of the extraneous circumstances that may have resulted in their appearing better or worse than their neighbours, and so profit by the examples before them.
0: This report's findings, compiled manually before it was printed and made more available, illuminate some of what life was like for the crews and companies of the Navy in the mid-19th century. Think about it as a giant spreadsheet. If you filtered the right information, you would find how your crew was faring among the others. Was yours more orderly? Were you delivering more punishments? How many cases of desertion were tied to your ship? rumors would have circulated with this information about this long in advance of this report. Respected accounts by senior members of the crew could shape the path of a career, but this report went further than these accounts could, providing the Navy with a nationwide current picture of the behavior and situation of its people. Information not of the many battles won, the great strategies deployed successfully, but instead of the misbehaviors, in comparison of how those who were in charge fared in preventing, fixing, or indeed encouraging them. With the temptations being very great for any sailor, they were now under the eyes of the British people, and the press would maintain a vigilant eye, as the Gazette remarks. Data was then beginning to determine the algorithms of behavior and their potential causes. Perhaps we have always wanted to know, at greater scales, how to make something perform better. The Army and Navy Gazette continues on its reflection of this report, sharing examples of ships' companies turned right, of captains successful or less so at making the Navy proud. But perhaps more interestingly for us, it examines the Ganges. built as its reflection of the ship's bad reputation is, anyone in the know would see right through it.
1: We have heard of a ship which was only commissioned a few months since as a training vessel for boys in the far west. Well, this ship has so far proved a disappointment. Up to this time, only thirty boys have been entered. Not long since, a batch of twelve arrived in the vicinity of her port with a view of entering. They heard such sad accounts of the treatment on board, that one and all turned their backs on the sea and returned to their homes. The commander is so unpopular, both on shore and afloat, and from all that has reached us, it would appear deservedly so.
0: Details of the commander's cruel ingenuity follow. The Royal Navy allowed birch twigs for the corporal punishment of the boys. The commander of the Ganges, however, found them insufficiently hard and tough, and decided instead, with the use of salt, water, and boiling, to make their strokes, and I quote, a little more piquant. It seems that war got around to the boys, who decided to seek their futures in land rather than risk the punishments of this commander, who would also prevent his ship's company, from taking their due leave.
1: The townspeople are irritated, and a general state of discomfort reigns in the neighbourhood. Their lordships will no doubt know how to deal with an officer who presumes to trifle with their orders. It was intended that a wholesome punishment should be administered to misdoers, but nothing was ever said about torturing them. Captain Tremlett may possibly find it worth his while to take an early opportunity of inspecting the ship in question, the whereabouts of which cannot be unknown to him the Army and Navy Gazette, 26th of May, 1866.
0: In July of the same year, a new commander is appointed. On the 30th of October, 1854, just a few years before your shift was born, Falmouth's new burial ground received a license by Henry, the Lord Bishop of Exeter, for the interment within the southern moiety of the burial ground, according to the rights of the United Church of England and Ireland, this document grants a temporary two years' permission and highlights the expectation of a chapel being built for carrying on the rites on the site. It also establishes the expectation that the parcel of land outside the metropolis be made available forever across history. It is not uncommon for the land that once was a cemetery to be repurposed for something else. Indeed, part of what used to be the original churchyard of Falmouth is now a patch of green land with gravestones lined up in the shade of the trees, tucked against the walls that hold the hills. If you walk through Fox Gardens, you will also find gravestones repurposed. Yet the bishop makes it clear that the license has been given upon the expectation that this land would be kept and maintained as a consecrated cemetery in perpetuity. Over a century and a half have passed and the town continues to keep this promise. The sentence of consecration comes only three years later. On the 19th of may 1857
1: and we do dedicate and consecrate the said ground as and for burial ground for the said two parishes of the town of falmouth and the parish of falmouth
0: it comes with a ground plan of the chapel and it mentions william told the church warden of the graveyard in town we heard from the cider on episode one describing in glorious and gory detail the state of the town's churchyard Do you remember the spear? Having approved of the arrangements made by the burial board, the bishop proceeded to grant the consecration.
1: And we do openly and publicly pronounce, decree, and declare by this our definitive sentence, or final decree, which we make and promulge by these presents that the same ought to remain separated, dedicated, and consecrated forever given under our hand, this 19th day of May, in the year of our Lord 1857th, and in the 27th year of our consecration.
0: The portion of the cemetery allocated and consecrated borders the Swampool Hill Road at the edge of the cemetery. The incline is mild here, but begins to dip quickly, becoming more and more steep the more you walk down the hill. In the decades following the Consecration, and during the time in which George Shift would frequent and perhaps even live in Falmouth as a boy, sailor, first officer, and chief gunner, the population of the parish would almost double to around 6,000 inhabitants. The burial Board would soon try to buy more space in the cemetery. You can hear more about this in episodes 7 and 8, but with this expansion of the town and the cemetery themselves, soon came the need to provide the population of Falmouth with further technology and services. The Earl of Kimberley, as one of the major landowners of the town, was often in the position to approve petitions for these advancements. In 1904, he agreed to the placing of telegram poles on his land along Swan Pool Hill Road.
1: The National Telephone Company Limited will pay to the said Earl of Kimberley the sum of two shillings per annum for every pole and one shilling per annum for every bracket, so erected or fixed, so long as such poles and brackets shall remain so erected or fixed as aforesaid. Agreement as to telephone poles and brackets at Falmouth Cornwall, dated 27th of October, 1904.
0: Ten years earlier, the town was conveying, The allocation of a part of the Falmouth Market House to the Corporation of Falmouth for the erection of a free library and municipal building. This was an initiative taken following the Free Libraries Act of 1894, and supported by the generosity of John Passmore Edwards, the library was erected on the moor. It stands there still today, like many other elements of Falmouth that we owe to the past, and it is stopped on the first floor by Falmouth Art Gallery. I dearly miss going there to scroll through the microfilm and look forward to the day where I can visit again.
1: When so strange? Did you ever feel you just don't? Belong?
0: The HMS Ganges, where George Shift served as chief gunner until he retired, spent a little over three decades moored in Marilar. Over the course of the years, the ship would entertain on deck, with bands, songs, pantomimes, and readings often taking place. The boys played cricket, rugby football, and ran in several races across each year, too many to count we found letters exchanged between the captain and a farmer securing permission for the boys to cross through the farm on the way to the main road when on leave with the promise of the captain that there wouldn't be any mischief. The farmer graciously obliged. According to the Mylor Local History Group, While visiting the area in 1893, author Beatrix Potter described the boys as noisy and high-spirited, but always in the charge of an officer on shore, where their healthiness and clean merry faces make them a pleasure to look at. We wonder if she might have crossed paths with George when she encountered them. The community followed closely the activities of the ship, and when the decision came from the Admiralty that the ship would be removed from Myler, the town was heartbroken. They had tried to fight the decision and secure the remaining of the ship, fearing that the removal of the last warship moored in Cornwall would sever the county's link to the Royal Navy, in disservice for all that Cornish men had done for their queen. The people of Cornwall had come to regard the HMS Ganges as a permanent part of the place, and held on to the hope that through the Friends of the County in Parliament, or a last-hour monster petition, they would manage to turn the tide and allow the ship to stay. It wouldn't do. The decision was final, and the towns of Mylar Falmouth, Penryn, and Truro, who had been used to the presence of the boys amongst them, would see their last in 1899. The town of Mylar remembers 53 of the boys lost whilst training in the ship, with a memorial erected in the cemetery in 1872. George Schiff would see some of the hardship, and some of the joys of being a part of the ship's company. We wonder if he was amongst those who stood in the rain on a September morning to watch her being slowly towed out of Falmouth Bay, dipping her ensign twice as a farewell to the town when she reached St. Moe's castle. We wonder if he saw the response from the soldiers at Pendennis.
1: A brave man's death. Some time since Mr. George Sheaf a yachtman on board the Yacht Chuff, belonging to Mr. E. Bosham, J.P., jumped overboard from the vessel at Dartmouth, and at great risk from drowning, rescued a gentleman who had fallen into the sea. As a result of coming into contact with something underwater, Sheaf's heart became affected. Yesterday week, he was taken ill and expired. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, 11th of November, 1899.
0: George Schiff died on the 6th of November, 1899. He would almost make the turn of another century. He had led a devout religious life. His obituary runs out of space to list all of the things he was involved with, all of the friends who came to mourn him. We have heard descriptions of burials here at On the Hill, well attended ones like Mishka Molnars, where the crew accompanied the young sailor into his last resting place, carved out of the steep slope of a hill. Burials like Elenodette's cough, which are the inciting incident of legends, the description of open holes in her coffin, and the simplicity of its wood in her obituary, unusual in the mostly Christian cemetery. And we wager it was the beginning of the legend, which has her buried holding hands with her husband, who died decades before. Burials signify the loss that those lives represented to friends and loved ones, and for George chief, it is said, his community showed up in numbers. He was buried on a Wednesday with hundreds in attendance, including Mr. and Mrs. Beauchamp, owners of the Chuff, the yacht he jumped off from to save another man's life. In attendance, too, were the members of the Salvation Army, the Rakivites, the New Street at Old School, Miss Fox's young men's bible class, as well as workers, boatmen, pilot, boatmen, Several handsome wreaths covered his coffin, accompanying him back into the earth. He left behind his wife, Elizabeth Ann, and three daughters. There seemed to have been two strands to George Shift, the religious man and the seaman. Which do you think might have led to his act of heroism? In this episode, we get to hear from one of our favourite writers and her response to the life of Joker Schiff. We had to record this online, so the sound might be different. Here's Amy Lilwell with her creator's response.
2: I feel them now. The runs of sweat cutting lines through the dirt on my skin. I didn't last week, I'm sure. There are more men today. A load of them came up from Newlyn when the waves were too rough to fish. It was too rough yesterday, and too rough the day before. But the more men in here, the more knocking with pickaxes and rubbing up against bodies you never laid eyes on. We gulp for air like baby birds. Still, the day wears on and the dirt fills in the lines where the sweat ran. If I ever get out of this life, I will sit all day in my stately parkland with my face turned towards the sun. You would not find a scrap of tin in my high rooms and plunging cellars. Not the roof, nor the scullery, for no one would live in a house veined with the sufferance of a thousand sweating souls. If you knew, foreman, oh, if you knew, your new out-of-town lodgings would be stripped back to brick. You do know, but not with your arms or your lungs. Why are you here? I say to George at the end of the day. You know why, he replies. The waves are crashing, angry. Wouldn't you rather die screaming at the sky, I say, than bent in half underground? Well, in any case, I'll end up in the same place, he says. We collect our wage and walk on together. I'm thirsty and I've half a mind to buy him a jug of beer. What's it like, I say. What's that, he says? The sea. He looks at me as if he hasn't heard. A Cornishman asking such a question. I admit that must seem daft. You can almost see it from here, he says. I shake my head. Not me, I've never been out of Redruth. He stops walking and it wouldn't have surprised me if he'd fallen back on his arse. Surely that's not normal, he says. My pa was at St Agnes for a time, I say. His stare is glittering over me, he says. The sea is the back of a beast made of twinkles. It's as wide as you can see and as changing as the sky. Sometimes a whipped-up mess, sometimes as docile as a puddle of oil. We see each other, he says, man and the sea. We dance in time against each other. Not like your underground clutch of rock that gives itself reluctantly, bashed and cracked and unforgiving. A man gets into the sea when it asks him to do so, and gets out if it lets him. As wide as you can see, I say. Wider still, he replies, you must know that at least. I do, I say, but I like to close my eyes and hear it said. He laughs. I've a good mind to take you back with me, he says. I shrug. Would there be work? Well, he says, as long as it don't dry up. The next day, I have to stop on my way to work to relieve myself. And from that moment on, I know that all's not normal. I'm sweating so much I can't stand up. In the mine, I think to myself that I'll sit for a minute, something I've never done, and I sit until my heart has settled. No one notices in the darkness, of course. All this talk of the sea has got me swaying just imagining it, I think, and I use that thought to take me somewhere else. Next minute, I'm being shaken by the shoulders. He's not too good, I hear. We should take him up. I open my eyes to lamplight and bodies. I'm all right, I want to say. But cannot sit myself straight. They take me up and lay me out in front of the mine. The air tastes like cold roses and bread. I suck it down and cough it up. My eyes are still closed when I hear the foreman hurrying everyone back to work. Take a break, he says, bending over me. I don't know how long I'm there, but the next thing I know my skin is being burned from my bones and the screams I hear are my own. It's then that I learned that even when man is close to death, he will fight and bite if he's not allowed to go peacefully. I open my eyes to George, one of five men pushing me into a barrel of steaming water and shouting at the others to keep me in there. This is where I think I'll die. For what, I think? For one man's sick intentions. And I honestly believed he would take me to the sea. I wake up in bed and watch the light for a while before looking down at my body. There are bits of me wrapped in bandages that tingle as if stretched. That water, I think, would have boiled me to soup. It occurs to me that some heroic soul must have rescued me and brought me home. When my wife comes in to tend to me, her smile up to her hairline when she sees me awake. It was George, she says, when I ask her how I came to be here in my bed. He had them carry you back in a cart. No, I say, he was the one that would have seen me boiled. If he hadn't, you'd be dead and in the ground by now, she says. What's that, I say? It was his remedy for cholera. That's what you had, and he boiled it out of you. Is that so, I say. Then I felt bad for bad-mouthing a man who'd done that for me. It wouldn't have been simple to find a pot big enough to boil me inside, not least for the protests of the other men. My hands at my sides took on a new importance. The end of my nose attracted my stare. It was still there, thanks to him. My legs stretched out at the same level as my head, made me start thinking that I needed them equally, head and legs. But my work only required the use of one. I got up there and then. My wife heard the floorboards and came up to give me a telling off. So I told her that what happened to me was life-changing. From that moment onwards, I would use my brain and my body equally, and I would get to where I wanted to be, be that the sea or out in a garden looking up at the sky. She looked at me and said, they've done more harm than good boiling you in that pot. And I replied, only time will tell. As it happens, I did make my fortune. And my wife often told the story of that morning in my bed, That's how I remember it so clearly. It was a while before I'd see George again and finally say thank you for putting me in that barrel and changing the course of my life. It was some twenty years later, the week before my wife's fortieth birthday, and we were to sail out of Dartmouth for a trip with friends. Well, I never. It did make me smile when they told us he'd be there. He'd also made something of himself in the Navy, and I was glad to discover he was keeping such good company in his retirement. I thought to myself that he'd probably like to see me on the sea, as it had been my dream all those years back. I boarded with some trepidation, but tried to hide it on account of my being a Cornishman, and not wanting the skipper to doubt that he and I were almost of the same land. I never got used to the way the water moves underneath a vessel, throwing me this way and that. A man gets into the sea when it asks him to do so, and gets out if it lets him. I remember George saying that, all that time back. He shook my hand, grinning, and looked me up and down as if checking for burns. I'd been looking forward to the occasion and had prepared some fine offerings for him. He accepted them, but I could tell he would have done just as well without them. We found a quiet spot on the foredeck to sit with a glass and a bottle, and were all too pleased to remember that day, the last time I saw him. I told him about the time when I discovered my head and my legs. He smiled and said, maybe there were bigger things in store for you, without my intervention. No, I said, I needed all of those ideas at once, you see. The nearness of death and the lure of the sea, it made me giddy with ambition. If you're really pinning that on me, he said, then I cannot help but be happy. I poured him a brandy and we knocked our glasses together. I don't touch the stuff myself, he said, but I'll hold a glass up to your health. In that case, to my health, I replied, and we both laughed. My wife's got a thing or two to thank you for, I said. She'll be faulty next week, you know. And with that I stood up to get her, as if to show her off and have her thank him as I'd said she would but the boat jumped on a wave and I went over the rail. I remember thinking on the way down that I'd be swallowed up in no time and that seemed fitting really. This man brought me to this life and in his presence I would exit from it. I let myself sink as I recall, not knowing how to stay afloat. Then I was clamped between two arms like a fish in a lobster claw. I woke up in a cabin bed and could have laughed when I saw my two arms by my side, my toes wiggling at the end of my legs. Well, I never, I said out loud. It wasn't my wife that came to me this time, but a maid. I sat up and asked for tea, then found myself chuckling so much that she asked if I was well. Can you believe it? I said. The two days in twenty years when I'm about to die and he is there to save me. He must be some sort of angel. She dropped her gaze. I'm quite well, I said. No need to look at your boots. Where is he? I said, waving my arms about. Tell him to wait for me on deck until I'm dressed. Unless it's raining, is it? We'll laugh over this, I'm sure. If you mean Mr. Sheaf, I'm sorry to say he's dead, sir. And my heart came down from my head and my arms dropped out of the air. Surely not, I said. George and the sea are practically the same thing. He would not have sunk. It was the shock of the cold that took him, sir. I frowned and said, I won't have it, then strode into the corridor in my nightgown. How could this be, when we had just been reunited, that he would save me again and die himself? My wife took me to him so that I might see, and there he lay, eyes pressed closed and tin grey lips, arms by his side, my trinket offerings on the table next to him. I have leached his life from him and given him nothing in return. He was loved, said my wife. We can only hope for that when we die. And to think, I said, he would have continued to feel that love, were it not for me. I bought him his gravestone. It was the only thing I could think to do. Not the grandest, but I remembered his look when I gave him my trinkets and thought that it probably wasn't his way. My head and my legs separated the day we buried him. Unlike my days in the mine, my head did the work while my legs sat idle. The sea let him out, but kept him all at once, I thought, and I just couldn't make sense of that.
0: I also got a chance to speak to Amy about her response and to talk about George Schiff's life. Hi, Amy. Thanks for reading for us and for doing this piece for On the Hill. Thank you. Hi, Sherazade. How are you doing? It's been a long time. I'm well. I'm excited to do
2: this. It has been a long time. It's been too long, so it's great to come back
0: and um, with a Absolutely. bang. Yeah. Absolutely. And with a bang and with you writing the piece for it, which is fantastic.
2: Oh, my pleasure. My absolute pleasure.
0: I want to know like, first things first, mm-hmm. you chose not to write it from George Shee's perspective.
2: Yes. With
0: with actually works really well for two things. One, we have so much information of him.
2: Yeah.
0: That I could understand as a writer. Oh, it's sad, you know, it's there um but the other thing is that this gravestone has a little note saying that um n collins is his, the gravestone is from his comrade and collins mm-hmm. um, can you tell us more about that
2: yes i can um so i suppose I think it's kind of the, the other two pieces that I wrote for On the Hill. It was kind of my way not to um, inhabit the person whose mm. story it was, uh, because I felt that that was a bit intrusive, maybe telling a story that I didn't know. So it was just easier to attack it from um, the perspective of someone on the outside. And I did the same with this one. Now, I was really struck by the fact that this person had had their gravestone bought for them. Mm. And I kind of fancied the idea that it was the, the person that he saved from drowning yeah. that might have wanted to say thank you. Um, and I started to flesh out this person. When I was working with you last year in the poly, I came across a note in the archives mm. um, that mentioned uh, um, a minor. Um, who was put in a barrel by his colleagues and boiled, and apparently he was cured of cholera. <sighs> now, I don't have a reference to this little story, but it's it's stuck with me. Um, yeah. And I always I said to myself, OK, the next story I write for On the Hill, I would love it to be about that. And this seemed quite fitting. So this person that we don't know much about... And uh, was saved by a person that we don't know anything about. So, as far as I was concerned, that could happen to him. So I had it in my head that I wanted to to write this story for him to build that particular character um and and that's what I did,
0: basically. So, yeah, yeah. it's wonderful, isn't it? Because sometimes you're in the archives and you're searching for something else mm. and you stumble across a note about someone disappearing or a note about the cholera, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's what lingers, this kind of not attachable random things that you encounter. Yeah, yes,
2: um, it does, absolutely. And it's an image that stays in your mind. And I know that you've done the same um, with like little scraps of information that you've read. And Mm. the image is so vivid, like the famous spear, that you grab it and think I'm going to use that. People need to know about this because it's shocked me, it's surprised me. It sounds like a tall story, to be honest with you. I don't know if someone would have been boiled in a barrel. (laughs) I mean, it was recorded. It feels like it was formally recorded, embellished upon, surely, but still, it exists, it's been archived, and I thought that story has to be told, definitely. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah. So, from your research as well, Sherazade, I could see that he was someone who touched a lot of people. He's highly mm. respected. He moved in lots of circles. I think that he just struck me as someone who, even if you encountered him briefly, he would only bring you good.
0: And yeah. so, that's
2: the slice of the story that I that I wanted to tell.
0: He didn't live long. Forty one years when he died, but but in forty one years, there's no report of him doing anything negative. It's all excellent, good, and yeah devout he seemed a very religious person
2: yeah devout you're right and if that you know that kind of thing has been recorded then they're the details that 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 we have to work with basically I'm sure yeah. that many many people lived their life and not, nothing you know like that was was reflected upon absolutely by the time they got to the end of it and the fact that he had hundreds of people at his funeral uh, it says a lot and I think that um he so the the other two stories that I've had to write, I've had there's been some facts, there, some substance, some they were they were major yeah. players, as it were, <laughs> <laughs> to be colloquial. Well, they were they were they were quite um, significant figures in their communities in their respective communities. So it was easier yeah. to to flesh that out mm. because it was what they represented rather than the person that they were. However, here that the the focus seems to shift from the, the wider narrative to the individual narrative. And that takes a lot of guesswork, definitely. Uh, yeah.
0: but We have so, this framework, don't we, of his life, but not necessarily yeah. who he was. Yeah, exactly. And Asi- Aside from that act, aside from this act of someone needs help and I'm going to give it. I'm yeah. jumping off a ship to save this person.
2: Yeah, a- and I think through that we can see who he was. Yeah. But, but I, I guess he just lived more, more quietly, which speaks volumes really, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. I think mm. a lot of people had a lot to say, but because they were moved
2: mm.
0: by by this gigantic act of generosity.
2: So, Sherizard, why did you choose
0: this particular grave, do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I was in the in the first time that we did a walk in the cemetery with Tony Casey, who had already started, you know, fishing out the stories. Um, some of them are featuring on the hill. some are not. but he he walked us through that grave. And I quite like where it was set in the cemetery. Maybe this is a weird thing, but um he's in the shade of a beautiful tree and Kind of tucked in a corner of one of the lots and and it's this idea that he was he died saving someone else that immediately marked it. So I knew, okay, this is a story we need to to tell. Um, I didn't know anything else about it. I didn't know he was that religious. I didn't know anything about the Ganges then, but I thought, okay, we we actually have a hero, so we need a hero. let's let's say this story. And, and as I was reading more and more about it, and as I was discovering more about it, this is one of the, perhaps the most Cornish story out of them all so far. Um, he's a boy from a little town in Cornwall. Um, his father was in the Coast Guard. He eventually becomes part of the Navy. You know, it, it seems like a very, of the time of the 19th century, a very Cornish life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, very religious, very um, it he seems like a conciliatory person mm-hmm. who was really connected to Falmouth or and to Cornwall, but in a everyday quiet kind of way, yeah, um which we probably wouldn't have even known about aside from this huge act of heroism, yeah. And that's, I, I just thought that was really lovely, this. We, we have very big names in, you on the hill, people related to world history, people, you know, marking changes in their discipline. Mm. But this is a Cornwall, a Cornish person from Cornwall, staying in Cornwall, who changes someone's life. And, and I like that. I like to think about that not all the, the things that we do in life have to be big and gigantic. And even only one big thing can really mark a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Now thinking about Cornwall, you have a lot of things in your story. You have the minds, the yeah. appearance, um, with wonderful images, like opening his eyes to lamplight and bodies, which is wonderful. And you have the cholera, which we talked about at the beginning of the season. Um, being part of the reasons why it was important to have another cemetery, mm-hmm. and and you have of course the sea, and the sea has such you know it's 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 been written about so much, yeah. And yet in your story, I still found new images about the sea, like the beast with twinkles in his back and mm-hmm. a whipped-up mess. I like the idea of the of the sea as a dessert, you know, <laughs> this yeah. kind of up mess and, and when when he falls and he feels like the sea is, is grabbing him like like a lobster, a fish. Mm. Um, so I guess I wanted to know, how do you write about the sea in an original way? How did you find your yourself creating these amazing, beautiful images?
2: Oh, well, that's very kind, Sherizade. Um, I think as I was writing it, I didn't I, I didn't think it was that original, really. Um, I mean, the whipped up mess, to whip up a storm, it does have its yeah. toes in cliche there, definitely, I suppose. But I was very aware of that. You're right in pointing it out. I was very aware of the fact that the sea has been described so many times. So I just tried to think of someone who really loves the sea and would like to be quite... Poetic in their description of it, and yeah. maybe wouldn't have access to anything too elaborate description-wise. So mm. I tried to kind of tap into what what this person would say, what George might say about the sea. And I thought, well, why not a beast with a back made of twinkles? That's a completely accessible image. So let's go with that. I also think um because I don't live in Cornwall anymore, as you know,
0: Sadie. I think. I'm-
2: Sadly, when I sat down to write this story in a coffee shop in Lincoln, I, I just suddenly felt very um, Cornwall sick, um, as Aww. opposed to homesick. And I thought, "Oh, well, let's just grab as much as Cornwall as we can, if we can, as we can, and stuff it into this story." So I was there with the mines and with with Newlyn and Redruth and all these names and the sea and fishermen and miners. And so I, I finished writing it, and I thought, "Wow, this is." Um, <laughs> I've, I've tried to throw everything in here, really, you know, and I don't know if I've done Cornwall any justice by doing that. But I thought, you know what? I just had real fun with this story, and and I enjoyed um, finding those images and writing them down and, and remembering what it's like to be there. And so mm-hmm. I thought, oh, okay, let's just go for it. It's a, uh, it's it's it's
0: good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I I think you did do it justice. There is. Even the the hint of the big manor houses with the gardens that he dreams about, you know, he dreams about having and this kind of contrast of the different lives Cornwall was about in that time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I was thinking about that. Obviously, you know, um, there are lots of stately homes in Cornwall, especially... Um, well, everywhere, I suppose. So, yeah, I, I, I think I had, when I was writing that, I think I had Trilisic in mind, maybe. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: so as these images came through my head, I just wrote them down, I suppose. But
0: It's yeah. interesting because Trilisic probably had a view of the Ganges when it was more than Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another sense, which I, I guess, also, maybe it's connected to the stories of the sea, but or to Cornwall itself. But there is a bit of foretelling. There's a bit of, you know, he gets put in the pot, and the pot is related to color. And you've told us about that, but but he gets kind of put in the pot again when he falls off the ship. And yeah. when he's going back into the yacht, he's he's shaky, you know, he's not there's a bit of a hint that. Or I read it as a hint. I, I, I heard it as a hint of, uh-oh, oh, <laughs> here we go. Um, I wonder about that because I feel like we write about a cemetery and we write about people who died. So there's, there's no big reveal. They died. Um, yeah. And I always either write toward the death or after the death or about the death. Um, what do you think about that? Have you have you had it present? I mean, this is a very unique situation where he, he gets prevented from dying twice.
2: Um, you're so right. It's all about death, isn't it? I haven't, <laughs> yeah. I haven't thought about that before, before, but you're right. We're writing towards the death or away from it. Yeah, so there's no big reveal because ultimately someone's going to die. Um,
0: yeah, it's <laughs> like that's... that's how? Yeah. Yeah. They're we for talking about them, basically.
2: Maybe that was my tactic, putting like a two near misses mm. and then having another person die. So perhaps subconsciously the writer in me thought, no, 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 we can't have this anymore. I will put two red herrings and then kill the other person. Ha ha. Uh huh. Um, but no, no, honestly, Sherizade, you've mentioned it before, but I hadn't thought about it in that sense that when we sit down and write these stories, it's always about the death. That's where the that's what's provoked this creative response.
0: Yeah. Uh, People tell me, they've been asking me in this process of not being able to produce the podcast, a lot about the podcast itself. And, like, doesn't it creep you out? And it's like, I don't think about death that is... It's like being in a library for me more than it is being in a cemetery. I don't think about, even though I know about, and we describe it in On the Hill, I don't think about bodies rotting, you know? I don't think about... No. You know, that kind of, the gory side of things. I just, I think about which are the stories that are interesting, how can we tell them? Yeah.
2: That's essentially, It's about bringing these people back to life, isn't it? And and giving them yeah.
0: some,
2: giving them some airtime, um, which is a really nice thing to do. Yes, you're right. The creepy side of it is
0: no. It's at the it's at the background, I think. And yeah, it's this idea of death as a as another form of storytelling. You know, even after you die, there's still things that can be said about you, which yeah, I find interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's knowing how to tell those stories as well, I suppose, isn't it? Like you say, I kind of approach these stories in a, in a roundabout way. Mm-hmm. Um, but here specifically, as I said before, the, the focus was really on what kind of person this was rather than what kind of role they occupied. So
0: Exactly, yeah. If
2: show how good someone is. Why not have them save someone's life twice, I suppose, and then die for it themselves? It's uh, Maybe that's, yeah. yeah, I didn't kind of engage with those thoughts um in too much detail, but perhaps that was the the reason. I also needed to tell the pot story, the, the story of something <laughs> in a barrel. I mean, come on. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, somebody. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Now I wanted to ask a bit about the mining a bit more. Oh, dear. Two things specifically. Yeah. So he comes it's very physical, obviously, mining would be. Um But you bring it out so beautifully. So it's this idea that when he gets out, the air tastes like cold roses and bread. And it's the fact that the roses are cold. That's that's such a brilliant detail, you know. Um, It makes me want to bite cold roses. Like, I was like, "Mm, I want to see what that tastes like. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: Where did that come from?
2: Cold roses and bread. I think that the sentence was originally warm bread and roses. And I thought, no, that's... I'm sorry, Sherazard, but this is a really terrible reply. It's not imaginative at all. I thought, no, that's too clichéd. So I changed it to cold roses and bread. I also imagined that the... that it wouldn't be warm, that I wanted to make the warmth come from him because he has fever, you see. So... Right. Despite this fever that he has, it's it's cold outside. Um, So... We talk a lot about context, I suppose, or we think a lot about context when you're um, studying a particular grave. It's to shine a light on the era as well. Yeah. So, if you were to draw a conclusion about this particular period in in time, is there anything that you've learned that's been a real eye opener for you?
0: I think, well, to me, there's there's an overarching narrative in all of the research so far, which is how connected. Falmouth was to the world Mm. Um, and not just to the UK to the actual world there were lots of people from different places coming in and out and and the population of that time would have engaged with them Mm. when it comes to I guess the late Victorians you know 1890s and wrapping up um, to Mm. the 20th century so the perspective on the world has shifted again so at the beginning of in the middle of the 19th century, they're doing all this, you know, let's fix everything, let's cure the diseases, um, let's use new medical procedures, you know, it's all more, it's super positive, it's this kind of, let's let's fix, let's make things work, let's put trains, let's do all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that in at the end of the 19th century, a little bit of that oomph had gone away, and also, they start to look at the things they were doing wrong like the corporal punishment, um, and the situation with the with the Ganges. So it's a bit more muted, it's less in your face, like let's fix the cemetery and open a new one. Mm. Um and it's more you guys are doing this wrong, what are you gonna do about it? Um which seems a bit contemporary if you think about it.
2: I think um, it's interesting yeah. you say that. It because I mean, from my studies with Mary Monk, that around that time, there is this emphasis on making the population stronger. And I suppose mm-hmm. um, stopping practices like um, whipping sailors, for example, that's, that, that was part of it. You know, we need these boys to be strong. They're our strength.
0: Thanks for listening to episode nine of On the Hill. Thanks to the staff at Kersen Kernow for working so hard to help the archive reopen and for supporting us as we relearn how to use it safely. And thanks to Falmouth University for providing me with more research time to make up for the unwanted break during lockdown. Stay with us as in each episode, we discover a new story, learn more about Falmouth Cemetery, relate the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. We want to ask you for a favor. Could you help us spread the word about On The Hill? Tell someone you know about this podcast. Please rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us so much. You can also find us on Twitter or on Facebook at We Are On The Hill and you can get in touch with us by email at weareonthehill at gmail.com. On the Hill is written, recorded, and produced in Falmouth by me, with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about George Cashwell Schiff, the HMS Ganges, the Falmouth Cemetery, and Falmouth Town in the 19th century by me. Fragments from the Lakes Falmouth Packet, the Cornwall Blue River Union, the Army-Navy Gazette, the Sentence of Consecration of Falmouth Cemetery, And the agreement as to telephone poles and brackets at Falmouth, read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by Amy Lilwall. This episode was edited by me. The hymn you listen to is The Battle Hymn of the Republic by Frank C. Stanley and Elise Stevenson. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us again next month for our next episode. I am Cherisai Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Oh, the oh. Of the dumps